Well, one of the, one of the questions that uh, we have to con regularly ask ourselves uh, is how do how does God's grace in my pain or my weakness, my struggle, how do these how do these two things relate? Both God's grace and my pain, my struggle, my weakness. And I think the reality is our default mode is we would like to say God's grace prevents me from experiencing pain. Or God's grace takes me away from weakness. God's grace, God's grace prevents struggle. Right? Uh, but the biblical answer, as we see here in 2 Corinthians, is not that. It actually is that sometimes God's grace brings us into a place where we are actually brought low. So that our view of ourselves is low and that the name of God is lifted high. Right, so God's grace is not necessarily keeping us away from pain, but it's going to give us power to endure through the pain. Right? God's grace is not meant to keep us from feeling weak. In fact, sometimes in God's grace, he brings us to a place where we feel incredibly weak. So that we would, we would realize we have no resources. And so that we would stop leaning on our own things. And we would look only to God. The one who gives us the very breath that we take these moments right now. Now, it's, it's, it's somewhat of a painful reality. Because we have to at some point realize like we are that proud. That we have to be brought low. In order that we stop looking at ourselves. And we actually look to our maker. So we're going to be in Judges chapter 7, uh, which is going to teach us this very truth. But I thought we, we could start here with Paul, because he tells it to us in a matter of three sentences very clearly. Uh, Paul there in verse 7 twice tells us, in order for God to keep me from being conceited, because I'd, I've been given this amazing vision, so powerful that words can't even utter it. it. It was so amazing, but to keep me from being conceited, God gave me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan. Somehow God used the, the ploys of Satan even to torment Paul, he says. And obviously Paul didn't like it, so he asks God three times, please remove this from me. And what does God say? But his grace is sufficient for you. Because my power is most clearly displayed both to your heart and to others' heart when you are weak. Because now, Paul, you will, have, you will have no other option but to say it was only your, my grace. That's how you got through. And therefore, I, when you look down there at what he says, is just almost unbelievable in verse, uh, verse 9 there. When he says, therefore, I'll, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. And then look at what he says. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content. Can you say that? I'm content with weakness. We want that to say I'm content to be taken away from weakness. I'm content with weakness. I'm content with insults. I'm content with persecutions. Bring it on. Because it only demonstrates God's grace more clearly to me. That's unbelievable. Now, I, I, I think this is a great passage for us to be in any time of our life, really, because all of us are going to experience the being brought low. Uh, the God disciplines those he loves, and God will bring us low. 
so that we have a lower view of ourselves and we have a higher view of God. So all of us are going to encounter this. So this is a great passage for us to, to look at, uh, not only this one, but as we get into Judges 7, to have a, a right perspective of pain and suffering and sorrows and weakness when we feel like we have no resources. When we're so tempted to think that the answer is to get away from the struggle. When actually the answer might be for God to say, no, I want you in the struggle, so you stop looking at yourself. And that you actually learn what it looks like to trust God alone. And we don't like that. So I think this is a good, it's a good passage for us to think about, to also be honest with God and say, I don't, I don't like that. Because we don't, I think this is a very uh, theological reality in Scripture that we do not like. And yet at the same time, we love it. It has to be true. We need this truth. And so that's where we'll have. We're going to walk through Judges 7. I've given you pretty much exactly where I think the, pa- the passage is going, that God graciously brings us low. So we have a lower view of ourselves and we have a higher view of God. Uh, and then we'll think about why we don't like this and why we love it. All right, so let's go back to Judges chapter 7. May God allow us to hear this reality this morning so that we, uh, we try to stop running away from struggle and embracing it instead. To not see uh, weakness as an obstacle to the joy of the Lord, but actually an opportunity to experience a deeper joy in the Lord than we ever have. Judges chapter 7, beginning verse 1, we'll read through it. I'll make a little bit of notes. Uh, as a way of uh, try, you know, trying to help your mind, try to slow down as we read. I'll encourage you to think about this question. Uh, if you, you know, if, if somebody came here and had a time machine and offered us, you know, this, these just like two or five minute clips that you could jump back into this passage and actually just watch the scene unfold, what five minute section of the passage would you want to get back? And I just want to see that one piece. All right. So you Try to, try to get into the story with your brain. Look at faces. Hear the sounds around you. Where would you like to go? Beginning in verse 1. Uh, then, well, let me, before we read it, let me just remind you us where we're, where we're at a little bit. Jerubbaal, which is Gideon. Uh, remember, last week we saw his weak faith, and yet God says, I'm going to be with you. It's not the substance of the faith, but the object of the faith. Gideon, you're going to be okay because I'm going to be with you. God's going to rescue you. Uh, Israel from the hand of the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east. And they've now gathered, if you remember, uh, against Israel. They've come into, into the, the land. 135,000 is the number that we're given in the next chapter. That we're described at this point as locusts. They're, they're like locusts all over the land. They can't even be numbered. Them are the camels. They come to eat the food. And here they've gathered. But God told Gideon, I'm going to rescue Israel through your hand uh, from them. And remember, Gideon asked for these three signs. The most recent was the fleece, uh, both uh, t- twice. So here we are, verse 7, uh, the people are gathered. Then Jerubal, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him rose early and encamped beside the spring of Herod. The camp of Midian was north of them by the hill of Merah in the valley. Then the Lord said to Gideon, you know, the, the people with you are too many for you 
to give the Midianites into the hand. Lest Israel boast over me, saying, my own hand has saved me. Uh, just pause there. Uh, I think that line right there is the very lens through which we should read the whole story. Okay, I think God's told us right up front uh, the exact uh, problem. If, if God just rescues Israel through Gideon as they are, right now they're gathered 32,000 troops from Israel, which you'll see in a minute. And God says, no, 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 that, that, that will never work. If, 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 if 32,000 of you beat the 135,000, I know there's a gap there. I know there's a, you're a much smaller army, but you're too proud. You'll, 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 you'll take too much credit. This is, this is not going to work. It's like uh, Satchel Paige, a uh, very famous uh, African-American, one of the, one of the early uh, African-American players to play in the major leagues. He, uh, supposedly, history says that uh, at times, he, one of his, because he, he, he would do a lot of like, cool things or whatever uh, and he would play. Sometimes he'd turn around to the outfield and tell the infield, come in and take a seat. I don't need you out there. Just me against the batter. That's all I need. So it's this sort of thing. God's saying, no, no, no. This you, Gideon, you have too big of a troops. This isn't going to work. And if you could see Gideon's face at that moment, like, like what kind of a battle plan is this? Too many people. So let's read it again, verse 2, and then we'll keep going. The Lord said to Gideon, the people with you are too many for me to give, the, to give the Midianites into their hand. Lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. Now therefore proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. Then 22,000 of the people returned and 10,000 remained. And the Lord said to Gideon, nah, the people are still too many. Take, take them down to the water, and I will test them there for you, for you there. And anyone of whom I say to you, this one shall go with you, shall go with you. And anyone of whom I say to you, this one shall not go with you, shall not go. And so Gideon brought the people down to the water, and the Lord said to Gideon, everyone who laps water with his tongue as a dog laps, you shall set by himself. Likewise, everyone who kneels down to drink. And the number of those who laughed, putting their hands to their mouths, was 300 men. But all the rest of the people knelt down to drink water. And the Lord said to Gideon, With the, the 300 men who laughed, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hand. And let all the, other, all the others go, every man to his home. And so the people took provisions in their hands and their trumpets, and, he's, and he sent all the rest of Israel, every man, to his tent. But he retained the 300 men, and the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. That same night, the Lord said to Gideon, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have given it into your hand. But if you're afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Purah, your servant, and you shall hear what they say, and afterward your hands shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. So Gideon went down with Purah, his servant, to the outposts of the armed men who were in the camp. And the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the people of the east lay along the valley like locusts in abundance. And their camels were without number, as the sand that is on the seashore in abundance. And when Gideon came, behold, a man was telling a dream to his comrade. 
And he said, Behold, I, I had a dream. Behold, a, a cake of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian, came to the tent, struck the tent so that it fell, and it turned it upside down so that the tent lay flat. His comrade answered, This is no other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given into his hand Midian and all the camp. As soon as Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, he worshipped. And he returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hand. And he divided the 300 men into three companies, and he put trumpets into the hands of all of them and empty jars with torches inside the jars. And he said to them, Look at me and do likewise. When I come to the outskirts of the camp, do just as I do. When I blow the trumpet, I and all who are with me, then you blow the trumpets also on every side of the camp and shout, For the Lord and for Gideon! So Gideon and the 300 men who were with him came to the outskirts of the camp and beginning at the beginning of the middle of watch, when they had just set the watch, and they blew the trumpets and smashed the jars that were in their hands. Then the three companies blew the trumpets and they broke the jars. They held in their left hand the torches and in their right hands the trumpets to blow. And they cried out, A sword for the Lord and for Gideon! Every man stood in his place around the camp, and all the army ran. They cried out and fled, and when they blew the 300 trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army. And the army fled as far as Beth Shittah, towards Zerah, as far as the border of Abel-Mahola by Tabath. And the men of Israel were called out from Naphtali and from Asher and from Manasseh, and they pursued after Midian. Gideon sent messengers throughout all the hill country of Ephraim, saying, Come down against the Midianites and capture the waters against them as far as Beth Barah and also the Jordan. So all the men of Ephraim were called out, and they captured the waters as far as Beth Barah and also the Jordan. And they captured the two princes of Midian, Oreb and Zeeb. They killed Oreb at the rock of Oreb, and Zeeb they killed at the winepress of Zeeb. Then they pursued Midian, and they brought the heads of Oreb and Zeeb to Gideon across the Jordan. And there you have it, how an army of 300 defeated 135,000. So if you could, uh, if you could go back to view some of those scenes, or one of the scenes, I wonder which one you would choose. I have a couple that I would want to go see. Uh, I'll give you a couple, a couple that I thought of. Um, the first one, probably most obvious, uh, I, I would love to see the look on Gideon's face as the, the army kept getting shrunk. I'd actually love to see him in the morning when God first, you know, they, they rise and he's got 32,000 and he's already probably half pale, right? Because he's, he, he's, he sees the whole army of the Midianites. They've been oppressed for seven years and he's been given the fleeces, but still, I mean, it's a, it's a massive difference. And then when God first shrinks the army down to 10,000, you can see him like calculating in his brain. Yeah, I suppose we can, we, can, we can still make this happen, right? I mean, it's like what for one guy, you know, against what, 130? Okay, we, can, we got some, these, these guys are decent here. We'll, we'll be all right. 
Uh, but I'd love to see his face uh, after they're separated. And you got 9,700 over here and 300 here. And uh, just him just going, oh, please. Oh, please. He's, he's got to give me the 9,700. That's just foolishness to give me 300. And then when God says, okay, with, it's with the 300 getting that's who I'm going to, ah, la, 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 what? Did you, I, I couldn't hear what you said. Could you repeat it? The 9,700, got it, okay. I mean, I just, I don't know what he would, I just think he would just about fall over at that point. 300? Like that's, that's uh, for every one guy in his army, it's 450 guys. And mind you, what are their weapons? They don't have any yet. They have no weapons. Now they're going to have trumpets, some jars, empty jars, and some torches. Now again, this just is highlighting that lens that we've been given at the beginning of the chapter. Gideon, your army's too powerful. It's too big. If, if you defeat the Midianites like this, you're going to think too highly of yourself. We need to shrink this down. I want you to know you have absolutely no resources. I want you to feel it. I want you to, uh, you know, I, I, you would expect him going home sick to his stomach. I mean, if, what if you could interview Gideon right after this point, you know? You know, sometimes Danica will ask me if I'm going to a softball game or if I'm getting ready to preach. She'll say, how are you feeling? You know, how are you feeling about the day? How are you feeling about the game? How are you feeling about the, the sermon? You know, and he's like, well, I feel all right. I, you know, whatever. I mean, what, what, what would Gideon say right here? What is he going to say? How do I feel about the battle? Are you kidding me? This... I'm not, I don't even want to go. I was hoping that I was one of you know, as they're drinking the water, I was hoping I drank the wrong way. But I, I would be released. How do I feel about the battle? What kind of question is that? So that would be the one, one place I would want to go. Uh, my second... My second... I, there's other places, but I'd probably go with, I'd love to see the battle plan communicated to the 300. I, I want to see the face on the soldiers at that point. Because remember now, Gideon probably just, just a mess is my guess. Before he goes to, to check out this dream, uh, or to, to go down to the camp and he hears the dream, he comes back, if you saw it in the text, he worshipped. When he heard the dream, because, you know, he shows up 135,000, he just happened to randomly find the right person who had a dream and somehow says, that's, that's for Gideon. Gideon is who doesn't know who Gideon is. I mean, that's like walking around Summerfest and all of a sudden someone tells a dream about you and you're like, dude, that's crazy. So Gideon worships. He probably comes back a different man. Suddenly he walks into the camp in verse 15 and he says, look, Arise, get up. He always given, he's given the host of Midian into your hands. Right? So, I mean, if you think of the soldiers, I don't know what they thought. I mean, I'm just, I'm just making this up. You know, I'm think, trying to edu- educatedly muse on what, what would have happened. So as a soldier, I might have said, you know, Gideon is like, suddenly he's, he thinks we're going to win. This is, maybe he's got some good weapons. I know what happened. He probably, he probably stopped one, you know, one of the camels, and he probably ambushed them and got us all the weapons. I bet that he's got a whole host of them back there. And as he said, okay, everybody line up. Here comes your weapons. 
trumpets. He says, you know, you just repeat after me. We're going to go out there. We're going to surround them, break up in 100, 300 people camps, and we're going to surround them. Okay, yeah, 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 this is going to be good. You take these trumpets and the, and the empty jar and the torches. Now, when I blow my trumpet, you blow your trumpet. Smash your jar and then shout for Yahweh and for Gideon. Yeah, let's do it. And then what do we do? Well, you wave your torch. Okay, and then what? Well, let's just try that first. And see. <laughs> like, maybe, maybe we'll have to regroup. We'll see, we'll see how that happens, right? Okay. <laughs> I mean, I think you're trying to get into a different army at that point, right? Again, does anybody else want to lead this, uh, this army here? But again, I think it's, it's just really trying to help Everybody in the scene now feel the desperation for God. That is their only hope at this point. And you see, sometimes God must bring us low so that our view of ourself is very low. We, we don't have the resources. We know we don't have the resources so that our only hope is to be desperate for God. Because the reality is we are that proud we don't feel how desperate we truly are for God. Just how desperate you were to get here this morning. How much grace and mercy was given you to be here. And we, most of the time, don't even give a second thought to it. And some, sometimes God has to bring us low. So that our view of our own self, our own resources, is very low so that God's name would be lifted high and we would actually live free. Because we all know to live for ourselves and live for our own kingdom destroys us. It's enslaving. And so God, in his grace, actually brings us low to feel it so we could lift his name high. So I think that's, that's really what's going on in this passage here. Um, next week, we'll see that Gideon actually didn't catch it. And he actually goes the opposite, opposite way. But may God allow us to think through this and say, you know what? I want to embrace that. And I, and I, want, to, I want to take the opposite direction than Gideon does. But here's the reality. I, I don't think we like this truth so much. I don't like this truth so much. I, I remember a particular time when uh, just life was uh, very chaotic and there was some very sad things. Uh, I was receiving some pretty harsh criticism, and I, I just felt like nothing. And I've told you, some of you this story before. I, I, re, I remember particularly, I was cleaning the dishes uh, in, the, in the kitchen there, and I was, I was, you know, from not perfect memory, but quoting, uh, pray, praying and quoting 2 Corinthians 12 there, and saying, Lord, I, you know, something to the effect of, Lord, I know, I, I know that like, it, to, to be weak is when I'm strong, and I know your grace is sufficient for me. And then all of a sudden, I, it was like I snapped. I was like, I don't like that. I, don't, I used to think I knew what that means. I don't even know what, at all what that means, and I don't want to know what that means. I don't want to be weak. I don't want to know what your grace is like through this. And it was a good, honest moment for my heart to tell God, I don't like this truth. 
Because if, if this is true, what we're saying, that sometimes God graciously brings us low so that we would have a lower view of ourselves and a bigger view of God, that, that, that means that's the process. That's the path. And we don't like that. So here, here's a couple reasons why I think we don't like it. Uh, first of all, I think we just don't like pain. We don't like weakness. It's, right? I mean, it, it's somewhat embarrassing. It's humiliating at times. We love to know the future. We love to be in control as a people. And to find ourselves in a situation like this, we don't know. The world feels very shaky, and we can't handle that. Now, I think we actually, uh, if you're born again here, uh, I'm guessing you love the outcome, right? Because we do, we do want to have a smaller view of ourselves, right? We want our pride to be limited, and I think my guess, my guess would be that if we, you know, all took a blank piece of paper and I, and I said, let's think about five years from now, what would, you, how you would like your life to look like, not necessarily like jobs or whatever, but like your personal self, your character. I'm guessing all, all here, born again, would say, you know, I, I would love more humility. I would love less anxiety. I would love to be someone that walks in faith more with the Lord, right? I mean, these these sorts of things, and we would, we would all say that. Um, and then we said, okay, how, 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 do you, how, do you, how do we go from here to there? What are we going to do? And I'll write that down. I'm guessing 99% of us, I know for myself, I'd say, well, I'm going to read a book on that one. I'm gonna go, I'll, go, I'll go to a conference on that. Less anxiety. Conference me up. I'm not going to put suffering on there. I'm not going to put make me weak. That that. that that's a good pathway. It's just not something I want because it's painful. I don't like it. We don't like pain. Uh, also, um, sadly, I, I think we're simply afraid that, uh, this is the way I wrote it down, that I'm afraid that God will take too much and provide too little. Right? The reality is, I mean, if I'm honest, I'm somewhat suspect of God. He'll ask too much of me, and he'll provide too little grace for me. So I don't trust him. I don't trust him to be faithful enough that I need, to be wise enough, to know my limits. I don't believe that he's good enough to get me through that. Because I have my plan. It's sort of like how quickly I want to jump in and say, okay, okay, fine, 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 fine. I see it. I see it in the passage. Okay, good. I'll, I'll agree with it, but let's set a little bit of terms here. This is how much I can handle. We good, God? Great. But I'm afraid that God's going to ask me too much of me and then provide too little grace. Another reason I don't like this reality is that uh, myself, I trust uh, many of us here, we're, uh, we're applause hungry or we're credit hungry. The reality is, is that if you see in the passage here and in Corinthians, uh, we want the credit for anything good that happens. That's what God tells Gideon. No, 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 no. If, you, if I let you guys go out like that, you're going you're gonna to win, and then you're going to take credit. And we like to take credit. We want credit. And when God brings us low, that our only option is to say, look, anything that good that comes out of me, I did nothing of it. Because I'm way worse than you could imagine. I mean, just think of how many ways that you try to sneak in credit for doing something. And, it, and this can be real, uh, 
real sly. So I might tell Danica, hey, you know, I was thinking on, uh, I was thinking on that passage, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 13 today. I was thinking on, while I was uh, doing the dishes, and uh, yeah, I just was thinking about this. No, you see what I just did? I just let her know, like, hey, I did the dishes. Uh, you, you do that type of stuff too? And I want her to know, because she, she hasn't commented anything on it all day. I did it, though. I want some kind of credit. So you just slide in the comments, like, hey, I did that over there. At least me and Isaiah do it, all right? <laughs> or sometimes, you know, I've, I've caught, I, I, tr- I try not to, but I caught early on, you know, I, I finish a sermon, I'm quick to ask them, so, you know, how, how, how do you think it went? I'm not really looking for criticism at that point. Uh, don't, t- don't tell me how it really went. Just uh, tell me what you th- how you think I want to hear, right? Give me something. Give me compliments. Credit me. Like, we want that. And this, this reality says, no, the credit's not yours. The credit's God's. Uh, last, one, one other reason um, why we don't like it is that we just simply have short-term memories of how good of shepherding God does even through our pain, even through our struggle, right? We so quickly forget just how God has brought us low through the past, and he's given us the grace we need, and if we could look back, we'd say, that plan was actually better, had you asked me before that. And so I I would commend to you, if you have, you know, 15, 20 minutes this week, just try to sit down and just, like, think through the years of ways that God has brought you low, and uh, you'd probably be surprised how quick that list uh, can, can grow. Now, that can be physically, it can, it can be mentally, it can be relationally, it can be uh, financially. Any, any ways where you feel like God is stripping away your resources, the things that you depend on for hope and happiness and security and safety in the world that you look to, when God has just made you feel like uh, you have no resources. And uh, I, I'm telling you, you, you might be surprised at how quick some of that grows. Um, you know, I, I had things on there about, you know, pre- preaching flops are, are, are really good for me. Uh, I don't like them at all. Um, and, and they, I, I feel like they, they happen more than I care. I'll have preaching spooks. I'll be right in the middle of a sermon. All of a sudden, I just, like, have this overwhelming thought, like, this is not going at all where I wanted it to. i got to get out of this thing. How do I stop it? Uh, f- you know, financial... Um, struggles, uh, you, you know, at times, or pastoral uh, hurts, uh, in- paralyzing anxiety, as I've shared before. Uh, I, re- I was reminded of this time, we were at, uh, I, this would have been 2002, I think, we were at like, a, in, at the church we were at in Racine, and uh, we were at this family gathering, so we were just having like this big potluck, and you know, like 200 people or so, roughly, I'm a guess, and you know, it, it was the end of the time, and everybody turns towards one another, half split down half the room, and the pastor was having us sing a hymn or doxology at the end. And uh, at the time, I was having panic attacks, and one came on right at that moment where, you know, the full tunnel vision, and uh, I, I had to actually, right in front of everybody, I had to leave the room, and it was incredibly embarrassing. Now, this went on for a couple of years, and it, I just felt like I had absolutely no resources and God does that, and it's good for us. I didn't like it. But I tell you what, God uses things like that so that you feel less confident in who you are 
You have bigger confidence in God, but a smaller confidence in yourself. Stronger confidence that God will give you the grace when you need it, less confidence to just depend on your own self. And so well, one of the good things that I, can, I have seen come out of just the, the regular um, experience of not having the resources, uh, check this out. In 2008, it was the first time I ever preached at, at Crossway, and uh, at the time, uh, Jason, who was pastoring here uh, back then, he was, he was introducing me, and uh, one, of the, one of the, I forget everything he said, uh, but one of the things that caught my attention was that he, he, he said that, you know, and Dan, he's, he's such a humble man, and he, what, I don't remember else what he said, but he said that, and uh, we, we came home, and you know, afterwards, and Danica was, at, later in the evening, she said, you know, she's like, how do you think it went today? I was like, eh, I think it was, I think it was fine, you know. She's like, what did you think about that introduction? I was like, yeah, I thought, that, I thought it was, <laughs> that was a good introduction, you know, like, it was, it was some kind words that, that he shared. And she's like, yeah, I, th- I thought so too. But I wouldn't describe you as a humble man. <laughs> What do you mean? I'm the most humble man ever. <laughs> it's like, okay. And you know, the first time, this was, I, I was around either 2018 or 2019, a decade later, for the first time ever, I ever heard my wife use my name and the word humility in the same sentence. And it wasn't saying that you're a humble man, it's you're becoming more humble. <laughs> We're moving somewhere. Now, is that something that, I didn't get that from a book or nothing. I came realizing, like, I just have nothing. I don't have a whole lot to offer. And I have so much to go, because I am a proud, proud man. So God uses this. Even though we don't like it, God uses this for our good. And lastly, though, let's just reflect on why, why do we love this reality? This, the, it's true. We are oftentimes more passionate about our comfort, about our safety, than we are about God's glory. Let's just be real about that. That's part of us, but there's another part of us that, that isn't. If you're born again, no, you want to live for God's glory. So we love this truth. One of the reasons is because we know our pride. Right? We've seen it, and we want it dead. We want to fight against it. And if this is what it takes, so be it, God. So be it, because you are the good shepherd. We can trust you through this. God's not being cruel with us when he allows us to feel weakness. He's being loving. He's being a good shepherd. He knows how to care for us. We also, uh, you know, I, I, I think we're all made and remade to live for the glory of God, not our own kingdom. And we want to do that at all costs, and we like to see it in other people. We like to see it in ourselves. I mean, one of the things, if you, if you ever read Christian biography, one of the things that is so enjoyable about that, oftentimes, is that many times the people in the stories uh, go through incredible suffering, and yet God shapes them through that. And we love to read that. And we actually love to experience it ourselves. And the other thing we experience in that is it can almost be like this adrenaline when you start seeing more and more how God uses your weak self for his honor. As you go do things and you feel like, I don't know what I'm going to do, I don't know what I'm going to say, I don't know how this is going to work, because I have nothing, and yet you see God come through for you, it's almost thrilling. 
And last, though, one of the things that we love about it is, like, what other choice do we have? This, this has to be right. We need this to be right. We need there to be a purpose behind the, the pain, a purpose behind the weakness, a purpose behind the suffering, right? We need this to be true. The great thing is this is not just chance. It's not just blind hope. It's not just empty words. Uh, this, is, this is actually a theme throughout Scripture, right? You, you see that in the story of Joseph. He's sent off uh, to Egypt. He's enslaved, and God rescues God's peop- uh, his people through that. You see that in Moses. As he, uh, God comes to him and tells him to go back to Egypt, he's like, I can't even talk. I stutter. How am I supposed to rally all these people? And he says, I'll, I'll, I'll be the, vo- the voice for you. You see this in the Apostle Paul. You see this in many of the saints. And, of course, where do we see it most? But we see it in our Lord himself. The author of Hebrews tells us that uh, the Son was, was learned obedience through suffering. Now, now how, how does the holiest man that's ever lived actually learn obedience through suffering and somehow we think we, that we don't need that? No, that's, that's the way of the kingdom. Now, one of the things we shouldn't do is just assume like, okay, so if, if I embrace this, then it's just going to be easy. And I, the, the reality is this, this, is, this is very painful. There's, there's a song uh, that, I, that I love from Andrew Peterson uh, called The Silence of God. And it starts off like this. It says, it's enough to drive a man crazy. It will break a man's faith. It's a make... It's, it's enough to make him wonder if he's ever been sane. When he's bleeding for comfort, like a, like a lamb, bleeding for comfort from thy staff and thy rod, and heaven's only answer is the silence of God. And that's, that's part of this experience, though. But that's where we have a Lord who came into this. And that's where we go. I think the Garden of Gethsemane is a great place to go as you feel the weakness. Because there you read of our Lord, uh, our Lord. We read it as the different authors put it, distressed or deeply grieved to the point of feeling like death. And you, you read in, in uh, Matthew, it says he fell on his face, cried out to the Father. And I don't, I don't hear Jesus in the garden. Of course, I wasn't there. I don't hear him just saying, oh, Father, please take this cup. I hear him in anguish. He's sweating blood. And yet, he says, not my will. Take this cup from me if you can take it. Yet, not my will, yours be done. And brothers and sisters, this idea, this way of life, this like faith here in this, these moments doesn't look like it's, it's not the absence of struggle. It's to trust God through the struggle. So we don't have to act like we have to have it all polished, like, well, I'm just going to believe and I'm just going to feel safe about this. It's okay to cry out. Cry out with the Savior. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But do it in a way that we trust God. I don't like this. I don't understand it. But yet, God, I know that it's good. I know that you're the good shepherd. Please help me. And we have a good Lord who comes near to us at those moments. So let let us uh, partake in the Lord's Supper and uh, as we partake of the Lord's Supper this morning, uh, you, you might receive it as, as promise. Maybe, maybe you're here and you, you, you are in a place of weakness. You are feeling pain. You feel like you have no resources. And we partake this morning and we receive God's promise to be for us. 
through the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus, that he's adopted us into his family, and we receive it by faith and say, yes, God, I trust you in this. And my act of even partaking this morning is to respond back to you in that as well and saying, I want to submit to you. I want to submit to your care. I want to submit to it and lay it on my life. Whatever the cost, let me honor and glorify your name. If you're a follower of Christ, we invite you to the table, provided you're seeking to walk in faith uh, with God. Um, if you're here this morning and do not profess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, we ask you that you not partake uh, at the table. But if you're here uh, striving to walk with Jesus and trusting in his death, burial, resurrection for reconciliation with God, we invite you to come. Again, come, come into the inner part of the aisle, grab the elements, and return to the outer part of the aisle, and then we'll partake together. Brothers and sisters, regardless of what the world tells you, regardless of what the flesh tells you, your God is for you and with you, there to give you the grace you need it through every struggle, pain, hardship. And God graciously sometimes brings us low so that our view of ourselves would be low and we would lift his name up high. And we know that because the Lord Jesus brought us back to God through his death and resurrection, the Lord Jesus, on this night he was betrayed, he took bread, and after giving thanks, he broke it, saying, this is my body, which is for you. First Corinthians, Paul, after he talks about the Lord's Supper, he says, for in so drinking the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. And one of the ways as we partake together, we're proclaiming the Lord's death. And let us do it this morning, proclaiming back to God, Yes, God, we believe it, we trust it, that what you say in the gospel is real, it's true, you're going to be good with us, or, or for us, you are good, a good shepherd. We will trust you, regardless of the cost, here we are. For the Lord Jesus, in the same way, took the cup after supper, saying, this cup, it is the new covenant. Do this as often as you drink of it, in remembrance of me.